Titus O'Reilly here, once again annoying you with our shameless plug for Bazaar plus our membership program, More Mick and Me. Simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. Welcome aboard, everyone. Anyone isn't happy, we call it all off immediately. The hunt for the weirdest. There you go. Can you put out a fact sheet with this? <laughs> you slide my mind. I don't. I can't <laughs> keep up. Strangers. Catastrophic, amazing, bizarre. Multiple layers of stupidity coming together. What could go wrong? Most unbelievable. It's like a Coen Brothers movie. Stories to ever occur. And they're only going to get weirder from here. Get comfy, everyone. Some good, some bad. And some just bizarre, which we love. In the world of sport. How many chimneys could you do in a day? I've researched the tool. To France, not Sports Bazaar. Right, police are called in. <laughs> For the players. Dennis Rodman is telling you to calm down. Testicle soup. Can I just stop you for a second? Don't act like you've never done this. I feel like once again we've strayed away from what I've researched. It's time for the leaders of the hunt. An old couple who've got our spark back. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly and Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest edition of Sports Bazaar. Uh, my name's Mick Malloy. I'm joined by Titus O'Reilly. As usual, Titus doing all the heavy lifting. What have you brought to the table? Well, we've said we'll do any sport. Yeah. We've been very clear about that. We're very democratic when it comes to sports. And today we're going to do a sport that I would argue has had the biggest impact on history ever. Well, that's a big claim. I absolutely mean I look forward to debunking it. What are we talking about? Table tennis. You've lost your tiny mind. (laughs) No. Would you like to start again? Would you like to... Erase the tape. What are you talking about? Well, so table tennis, When we're going to go through some of the history and key moments in yeah. table tennis. Table tennis is the Forrest Gump of sports. And, okay. and what I mean by that is, one, table tennis is in the movie Forrest Gump where he learns <laughs> to play table Correct. tennis. Secondly, Forrest Gump's about this guy, everyone knows the story, who yeah. keeps showing up at all the key moments in history. And right. you suddenly realise he's meeting this president, he's in the Vietnam War, he's doing all these things right. Okay. Table tennis. I'm going with you on this. but I'd... Table tennis connects so many people in a way that you just would not expect. Uh, and I'm going to prove this to you. I look forward to hearing your thesis in full. <laughs> Fire away. Let's begin by just giving ex- my first bit of proof that I'm going to offer you. Exhibit A. Right. So at the moment when we're recording this, and I don't know when people will be listening to it, but when we're recording this, we're moving towards rapidly King Charles getting his coronation. Sure. So this is all in there. Right. Now, King Charles, as he's now known, former Prince Charles, he has a table tennis connection straight away. <laughs> is this uh, above board? Is, is so, this what are we talking about? No, it's not a nefarious one. It's a silly one in that when you become 21, he, in 1969, this is, he's become the Prince of Wales. So before he becomes yep. King Prince of Wales. He has a ceremony and he gets given a crown. Now, the problem, the Prince of Wales crown or coronet, as they call it, it disappeared because the one they had, the Duke of Windsor, who had abdicated being king, left for Europe and taken the crown with him. He trousered the crown. (laughs) He stole the crown. That's unbelievable. (laughs) So so there's something going, oh, this is all, we've got to make Charlie Prince of Wales or we don't have a crown. I would have thought when you abdicate. (laughs) You leave everything as you found it. He's you like, don't take a couple of knickknacks with it. Well, he's like the guy leaving work. <laughs> Whatever you can get into the box. Yeah, like there's a lot of stationery wow. gone missing. So they need a new one. Yeah, the Queen Mother, who's alive at this point and everything, she decides, look, I don't want to ask for the crown back because I don't want to talk to this guy anymore. <laughs> so she says, we'll make a new crown. So they call in a guy called Lewis Osmond. Now, Lewis Osmond's this 
sort of maverick creator. He does architecture, sculpture. He's a jeweler. Right. He does Elizabeth Taylor's jewels. Yeah. All these sort of things. So he's known he's in overqualified. Whenever he needs money, he makes jewelry. The rest of the time, he's doing art. Right. And he's seen as a modern, exciting designer. So they think this is what we need. It's nine sixty nine. Let's make the royal family look good. Wouldn't you just go to the Queen's Milliner? <laughs> is it a different thing? It's a it? diff- full gold plated jewels in it, all that sort of stuff. So anyway, Osmond makes this wax mold of what that he wants it to look like. He designs it, yeah. and and basically it gets sent off to these company who do like the jewelry and they do all the gold and everything. Yeah. And, and the way they have to do it is they sort of do this thing called electroform where they get the form of it and then they gold plate it. It uses an right. electric charge, right? And on top of the crown is, and anyone who can look this up, if you look up the Prince of Wales coronet, it's called, 1969, you'll see a picture of this. And we can put a picture on our sure. socials. It had in the design an orb sitting on top. Anyway, they keep trying to make this orb out of gold using this thing and they can't do it. It keeps collapsing and breaking. They can't make it solid gold because if you do that, the crown's too heavy. So one of them figures out, I'll use a ping pong ball and get the ping pong ball and just gold plate a ping pong ball. So sitting on top of Prince Charles' crown that he got made Prince of Wales is is a ping pong ball. And if (laughs) once you look at this, you'll never unsee it. It is exactly a ping pong ball floating above the ground. And what happens to that now? Just like... Prince William think, get it? or I think whatever. when they're drunk, they pull it off and have a round. <laughs> so they, they do have well, a there you go. Okay, so, so far so good. You've so, tied so it's it right, to a historical event. And it sort of sums up, yeah, Prince Charles is kind of this serious in some ways but also kind of silly character and the table tennis sums this sums up, up in a way. On top of that, table tennis has also been a huge thing. You now have like Pong, the original arcade game that kicked yes. off the computer industry, the whole is thing. a table tennis simulation, table tennis right? Simulation. So there's all these little ones like this. There are also multiple different versions of table tennis that now exist. And Not that I recognize. There's the world championship of ping pong, right. right? Is there a difference between ping pong and table tennis? We'll get into all of this, oh. but because proper table tennis is too fast and you have to be really good, a bunch of English and American guys created a version of it that is slower, so the balls are bigger, and just so it? they can play. It's like bigger. a Nerf ball or something. Yeah, it's so like, like let's make this easier. And then there is beer pong, of course. Is I'm aware of beer pong. Very popular. That yes. started in the 50s and 60s. Should be a demonstration sport at the Olympics. My favourite, and this is the sport you're going to like. Sure. There is a version of table tennis called ping pongo. Ping pongo, not ringing a bell. Right. It's ping pong with obstacles. So what you're allowed to do is you can add a whole heap of both physical obstacles to the – it's often played on a table but it can just be played in a room. Right. Or mental obstacles. Mm. Now, what that means is some of the, some of the material ones – it started in Argentina. They'll put Rubik's Cubes, building blocks like Lego, Jenga pieces on the table and you have to hit around it. Well, or if you hit it, it creates problems. This is dangerously close to just piss farting. Yeah, oh, totally. There's beer bottles. Quite common is framed photos of Carlos Gardel, who's an Argentinian singer. <laughs> so this is, but there are also mental obstacles. So while you play, they can put in mental obstacles, and they're things like, like you have to answer questions while you're playing, oh, okay. trivia, or you have to um, mention things while hitting the ball. So it might be you know name a country every time you hit the ball, or whoever doesn't say a country. Yeah. You know, so they do all these sort of things, right? They also had to, because of this, ban several things. 
you know how whenever there's a rule, you go, well, that must have happened. <laughs> so some of, the, some of the mental and physical obstacles that have been banned include smoking, making Nazi comments. <laughs> that would be a mental obstacle. Yeah, like you're a Nazi. Uh, and in Argentina, you're probably right well, too. You could be playing a Nazi. You can't use any expression of violence or you can't use your cell phone during the matches. So these are some oh, of the ones. That would give you the mental upper hand. Yeah. To really begin in earnest my argument yes. that table tennis is the most important sport in the history of the world, let's go back right to the beginning. All right. 1880s, lawn tennis becomes popular, like proper tennis, the beginnings right. of proper tennis. Some people see tennis, they like it. Some British army officers that are stationed in both India and South Africa, they invent a game just off scratch. They say, let's play tennis inside. <laughs> so they use a table. It's lazy tennis. So it's not like a standardised table. They use cigar box lids. Yes. As paddles. Right. And they use rounded wine bottle corks as balls. So they get champagne corks wow. and they carve them into a ball and use them as the balls. So this is how, and books are the net. They're on a three-day bender, <laughs> these guys. They've got the cigars yeah. out. They've got the corks out. It's raining outside. Let's yeah. set up a table. And do this, right? And and so this is kind of like table tennis in the Western world, especially is kind of a ongoing kind of joke in a way. Yeah. It started off as a bit of just, Drunk guys yeah, sure. mucking around. Up the top end of town, wasn't it? Very, Is yeah. It these like, are like, yeah. the, well, they're the top officers in the British Army during ruling South Africa and India. And and they always sent the third sons of rich families to serve in this, ones that weren't <laughs> going to inherit. So they're not the brightest guys, but they are the nobility in many yeah. ways, right? Is this in England? No, this is in India in and India, India and South, you told me South Africa. Billions was invented. A lot of English sports come out of their soldiers after a busy day of oppressing the locals. <laughs> God, I need to unwind. Yeah, Let's yeah. invent a game, right? It then gets transported back a bit to England and starts to be playing. It becomes quite fashionable among the upper classes, just as right. a joke thing, right? So at the same time, England's going through this boom of things like board games. Yeah. So they start making all these board games. And the first set of table tennis that's ever made is in 1890. And a guy called David Foster puts out a set of parlour table games and includes a table version of tennis cricket and football. Okay. So it's got all of them in there, right? It's got rackets that are actually got strings on it. So yeah. not the table tennis paddles, but a small tennis racket. Yeah. It's got a rubber ball, a wooden fence that you set up around the side of the table. <laughs> so it's like true tennis. And then nets along both sides as well. So okay. the ball doesn't go everywhere. Sure. So it's the beginning of it. There's a famous game maker called Jacques of London. They release one and they call it Gossamer. And it's the same, but they... Gossamer. Yeah, but it's the same thing, but they have rackets that are more, it's like animal skin stretched over a wooden thing. So it's like a drum almost, you know, okay. like, and they have a cork ball as well. These games are not that popular because the rubber bounces too high <laughs> right. and the cork ball doesn't bounce enough. Okay. But it's starting to be. So all through the 1890s, Jacques continued to advertise this Gossamer game yep. with limited success. But in 1900, an Englishman, James Gibbs, he goes over to America and comes back with these celluloid balls that he learns that this is the early sort of celluloid, which goes on to be movie, film and everything. He Has works he made out, these or commissioned these? He, he works out that celluloid is this new wonder material and he works out, oh, you can make a ball and it's quite good for what was table tennis. Okay. So he brings it back and suddenly this makes the game work. You don't have cork balls, you don't have rubber balls, you have celluloid and balls. It takes the ones off. We and it takes off. 
And when you hit these celluloid balls against these paddles, with they're called battle doors, they're the ones with the stretched skin, it makes a ping pong sound. So ping pong comes from the, the sound, sound of, of this. The, Not the brackets you use today. Celluloid balls. Balls hitting these stretched animal skins on wow. these wooden rackets, right? Wow. So this suddenly works completely well. And so another Englishman at the time, E.C. Good, he decides that he'll build this wooden blade paddle and he'll put rubber with pebbles on it, much yes. like the ones of today. He works out, oh, if I put this in, I can create this racket which gives a bit of spin and grip on the ball and suddenly you've got the table tennis that dominates from then on. So, so this is basically the template for the This is the game. template. Well, very much so. And what year is this? This is sort of 1902. Okay. Table tennis paddle that exists yeah. now. In the USA, they call it a paddle. Yes. In Europe it's and Asia, it's called a bat. Yes. And the International Table Tennis Federation decides they politically didn't want to upset Europe or Asia or America, yes. so they call it a racket. So a these racket. are all. No, <laughs> these are all. Table in, tennis ra- oh, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, racket. yeah, it's all interchangeable. It's a bat. Around this time, a guy called Frank L. Slazinger, you might recognize the I name Slazinger no, from. Big in tennis. Big in tennis, big in like sporting goods. Yeah. He is a New Yorker and he decides, I'm going to start importing table tennis sets into America as well. And, and what's a set at this stage though? Just the rackets? Net, the couple of balls, a couple of rackets. So that's it. And at this point, it's very much like a board game. It's not a sport. It's a board game. It's like if you played Monopoly or something, it's like you're something to play at home on a rainy day. Sure. And it's, it's sold at toy shops and things like this. Okay. He decides to call the game Pom Pom, is the name he comes up with. Well, that didn't catch on, did it? <laughs> that lasts for a year. It doesn't sell that well. So he decides to change the name of the sport to Whiff Waff. <laughs> So table tennis has already yeah, been called kidding. ping pong, pom pom, and whiff waff, and like, it's two years old. It's no one's back. taking this game seriously. No one's taking it seriously. But he imports it in 1901 to America, and over 1901 to 1903, it becomes an, boom. an absolute fad, like wow. massively popular, right? It catches on so much in America and Canada that it's everywhere. It's pictures and after-dinner amusement. You know, you have a brand in a port, you chat to the opposite sex, and you play some table tennis. Right? This is the thing. What could go wrong? In the Chicago newspaper in 1902, it says, by the end of January, the nation's second largest city had a problem. Chicago is suffering from a cruel famine, a famine of ping pong balls. (laughs) There's a whole book on just all the articles and ads around ping pong. It is a full-blown, like, absolute most popular thing in the world, like a One Direction when they were big or something. It is everywhere. Okay. In Canada, in the Victoria Colonist, which is a British Columbia paper, they write, ping pong is spreading in Canada generally with the rapidity of smallpox in an unvaccinated Mexican village. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Which is quite the phrase, right? There you go. So it's taking off. Way to promote the game. Yeah. In Philadelphia, the fad gets so big. People are like putting ads in papers for things unrelated to ping pong, but they link it to ping pong. So like like clothes and shoes and certain fashion and everything. I can't convey how big it is. At a zoo in Philadelphia, and this is from the Philadelphia Inquiry, they decide that they would give monkeys a table tennis set. What are they calling this one? (laughs) This is from directly from the newspaper. The monkeys put their own interpretation on the rules. The only use they made of the two paddles furnished them was to first break the ball and then chase all those monkeys not provided with rackets into the corner of the cage. 
That's good after-dinner monkey entertainment, <laughs> that is. So this is absolutely huge. And suddenly it's so popular and so big and people are marketing these sets yes. to, to sell and there's shortages of them. They're so popular. But suddenly there's all these names we've talked about. So it's known as Ping Pong's the most popular, but it's yeah. also known as Gossamer. It's known as Wiff Waff. It's yeah. known as Parlor Tennis, Indoor Tennis, Pom Pom, Pim Pam, Neto, Neto. Clip Clap. Which sounds like that you don't want to get. And Tennis de Salon. And are these all just because they're different Different brands and manufacturers. And but just, they're basically plying yeah. the same. And it's huge. Like it's like Pokemon Go when it was big for a few, you know. It was just everywhere, right? right? Like right. it's everywhere. Ping Pong, which is the most popular name by a mile, is trademarked by the Hamley Brothers in England. They're a big store that still exists this well day. Well done. And soon after, they partner with Jacques of London who are making the Gossamer version to market sets under the ping pong brand. Right. They rigorously enforce through the courts the ping pong trademark. Yeah, they do. Like they're suing everyone. So if you mention, and if you say I'm running a ping pong tournament, and they go, you have to be using our brand of ping pong tables and, and everything, right? They then sell the rights of the name ping pong. They own it in England to Parker Brothers in the States. Parker Brothers, the makers of Monopoly, Cluedo, Risk, Trill Pursuit and Scrabble. Yes. This is like 1902. They own the brand name. They start suing everyone who uses the term ping pong <laughs> and it's like a huge deal. Ping right? pong, it's such a dumb thing <laughs> yeah, I know. to this put is all the these resources into Yeah, yeah there's lawyers like, you say ping pong, yep. we will yeah, but it's, have your house. It's in every newspaper all the time. It's in every ad. So they're yeah. suing other companies using the term ping pong in their ads. It's one of those examples of a brand that's become synonymous with a sport or with a product. Yeah, to like the point, Esky or to the point now in America, Lawyers keep trying to have cases to say you can't own the trademark of ping pong because it's become so ubiquitous. So, so it's still a legal issue now, right? Wow. But at the time, it's a huge issue. And so they start suing everyone out of existence. Um, <laughs> the name table tennis emerges as, as a way to of... get away of calling it That sounds ping much pong. fun. No. Ping it's, pong that's the thing. sounds like... Yeah, ping man. pong is still seen to this day as... You're drunk with some mates and you get the table tennis table out. And where table tennis is seen now as the sport, where this is still very much the after-dinner fun game, like right. like Pictionary was in the 80s. That's what it's like. Like all fads, though, suddenly dies. What do you mean? It stops. It, it's a riot and it just overnight. And yeah. overnight it stops. What happened? Was there an incident? Or? No, it just ran its, like, like it's, it's, it's yeah. not a sport. It's a fad. It's like, you know, Pokemon became popular, you know, Go for, it was in every paper for a while or Sour Bread during lockdown. You know, you know, certain things suddenly everyone's talking about and then you fast forward a year and no one cares, no one cares anymore. anymore. They've all done it. Okay. Ping pong it has come it. and gone. It's come and gone. It's absolutely dead by 1904. In the same year as 904, the man who changes table tennis forever is born at the same time. Make him sound so important. This the guy. The man who changes the face, face of, of table, table tennis. tennis. This guy we're going to meet, his name is Ivor Montague. Ooh. You are going to love this guy. He is one of the most amazing figures of the 20th century. Okay. And I'm not a, a, no, no, you wait, you wait, you wait. I'm going to tell you all call. the things this guy does even beyond table tennis. And he lives a life that you will not believe. Alrighty. So he's born in the 23rd of April, 1904 in Kensington, London, right? He's born into massive wealth, huge wealth. He is part of the Montague Jewish banking dynasty. They got a mansion in Kensington. Yep. 
they're as big as you can get. They've been made nobility in earlier generations. They're barons. His dad's a baron by the king. Sure. They are friends with the royal family, like close well friends, well connected, more money. Yeah. At four years old, he meets the Princess of Wales, Princess Victoria Mary, who goes on to be George V's queen. By the time he's six, though, he asks his father to get him a table tennis table for their house. Now, table tennis is still around, but it's not popular. Sure. And it gets put on this vast landing and it's a big table tennis table inside their house at the top of their big stairs. You know those two stairs that curve up as you go in the entry of a huge mansion? At the top of that, he's got a table tennis table and he plays on this all the time. When he's not playing on it, his dad uses it for bridge <laughs> and he has his friends over the foreign secretary and the home secretary. Yeah. So this guy so is not like... deals at this table he is, well. Yeah, he is the establishment guy even from the youngest age, yeah. right? More money than he can ever count when he's 13 though the first world war's on and he is walking down the street and he sees this book it's george bernard shaw's socialism for millionaires which is a sort of a socialist tract okay he reads it and decides that socialism is the explanation of all history and is the solution to all people's problems suddenly this rich aristocrat suddenly becomes an ardent socialist he's a overnight at 13. Champagne socialist. No, but he's even more than this. He's so committed to it and this becomes the ideological base of his entire life and it's going to get him in all sorts of right. interesting things. This is where it becomes interesting. So one night he finishes classes at one of his, his rich school and he always used to change uniforms so he'd be in his school like very high-end Eton school uniform. Yes. He'd change into working-class clothes because he didn't want to be identified as rich. The only problem was his favourite thing, he had an ivory cane with silver trimmings. Oh, so that's he, a little telltale. So he, He'll give away. Yeah, so he'd keep carrying that right. One night, policeman. <laughs> he that comes, looks like a, some kind of Dickensian <laughs> yeah, figure but yeah, with yeah, a really expensive, expensive thing. One night he's leaving class. And outside, a policeman fighting unemployed war veterans. This is in the, after the World yeah. War One. He instantly, being a socialist, sides with the war veterans. A policeman is beating up one of the war veterans, and he grabs his cane and knocks out the policeman yeah. and escapes into the crowd. No one knows he's even it's done like it. A superhero. Right. As he gets older, he visits London, and he's only like in his teens. He befriends H. G. Wells and George Bernard Shaw, who were both socialists. And how does he meet them? They're all just at uni mix together. all in the yeah. They all mix in the same. So he right. goes out of his way because this he starts to join the British Socialist Party and the Communist Party of Great Britain. Yep. This is all in the twenties. He starts hiding contraband copies of Lenin's State and Revolution book on the landing behind the pool table. <laughs> so the foreign minister, the, the minister, the no foreign minister, they're all meeting there, but they don't know underneath the table is really? all these. Lennon books that are illegal. Do they like, know table tennis is being played on that table? <laughs> so his dad becomes horrified to discover that he's harboring a teenage radical because this is just anathema to him, sure. right? Like he's a rich guy connected to the thing. They are anti-communists on yeah. a massive scale. They think communism is going to come and sweep away the sure. the nobility and everything. You lose everything. So they just can't believe it. So they say you need to calm it down. Yeah. So they send him off to Cambridge. <laughs> He loves clubs, so he founds two clubs there. The first one is the Cheese Eaters Society. <laughs> and you're saying this man is going to become one of the most important yeah. members of the tree. This is what's so amazing. Their main aim is to try and find Wales milk cheese. <laughs> the documentary record is silent on whether he achieves that or not, but they want to make Whale cheese what? out of Wales. They want to get whale milk and make cheese. I don't think they really do this. Like, this is the, this the aim. 
And he also creates another one called the Spillicans, which is a left-wing society where they talk about the rise of communism and they wear black ties with little red dots on them. (laughs) At this stage, he's finishing up uni, but because he's got so into communism, he starts to meet all these Russian filmmakers, film silent filmmakers, and they are the edgy, all these new techniques emerging out of Russia, and he meets them all and he learns them all. And he loves film so much that he would he rather celluloid in a ping pong ball? He, well, this or is this. It's all tied a movie up. Camera. Oh, is it? He loves both, right? Like, so he with a guy called Sidney Bernstein. He then founds the London Film Society in 1925. This is right at the start of the film industry yeah. really taking off. Bernstein goes on to film, uh, create, and become chairman of the Granada Group, which is hugely no. known. In they they start Granada Television. Yes. A lot of the shows Massive. from the 80s and that are Granada. So he's mixing with people like this. It's the first British Film Association. They show all these art films and independent films and he becomes the film critic of The Observer and The New Statesman. So he's the first ever they have and he's writing about film all the time. In 1926, a film The Lodge is made and the producer gets the cut of it, a guy called Michael Balkan. He watches the film and he thinks it's so bad he's furious and says, I'm never releasing this film. Instead, though, he calms down and thinks, I'll call Ivor Montague, the film critic. Yes who I know, and ask his thoughts on it and see if he can help fix this film. Montague goes to meet this director who's a complete unknown director by the name of Alfred Hitchcock. (laughs) What? (laughs) Jesus Christ, you're doing my head in now. I told you, Hitchcock is furious that this guy's been sent to try and fix his film. What's the film called? The Lodger. It comes out in 1927. He is an unknown director at this point completely, right? Montague goes and meets him and Hitchcock is like, I hate you, straight away. But they work together for two weeks recutting the film and by the end, they are amazing friends. Hitchcock goes, this guy's not here to ruin my film. He's he's helping me and this is great. The film comes out, it's a huge critical commercial hit and it makes Hitchcock, absolutely makes him. And he he attributes Montague with doing this for him the whole time. (laughs) For the rest of it. They work together for the next decade. Yes. Sharing credits on a lot of movies about spies, The 39 Steps, yes. Sabotage, The Man Who Knew Too Much, and The Secret Agent. There you go. So much so that Hitchcock has a group with Montague where they would meet for hate parties, where they would dissect the week's film releases and decide how much they hated them. I like that more than The Spillikers. <laughs> he also goes to America where he lunches with his family friend Franklin D. Roosevelt the president of the United States. This is where I'm saying, right? Like, he's the real Forrest Gump, right? Like, he also gets to know quite well Charlie Chaplin, who's the biggest film star at the time, to the point he sends Charlie Chaplin, this is as the 20s move into the 30s, he sends Charlie Chaplin a copy of a book called The Jews Are Watching You, which is a Nazi book about all how the Jews are running the world, and Chaplin's mentioned in it. Chaplin reads it and decides to make the film The Great Dictator, which is the one where he... Of course. Uh, makes fun of Hitler and yep. Hitler hates him for it. But Montague is the guy that gets gives, puts, him up to puts Charlie in that. Montague then makes a film which is about the 1933 flight over Everest, with the first ever. It's called Wings Over Everest and it's when a, a guy, Douglas Hamilton, flew a single-engine biplane over Everest South Peak, just making it over, right? Montague makes a film about this, films the whole thing. Yes. It wins an Academy Award. So he's in his 20s, he's won an Academy Award. The aerial photos from the film get used by Tenzig Norgay and Edmund Hillary to plot their expedition to reach the top of <laughs> Mount this Everest. This is out of control. Yeah. 
Like this guy. So he's making films, isn't this? Now we get to table tennis. One true love beyond communism and film is table tennis. And in the 20s, no one cares about it. Like the fad's over. For 20 years, no one's barely played it. Why is he pursuing this? And he just loves it. He founds at 17. He's got money, remember? Yes. So he founds the English Table Tennis Association. He's 17 years old. He's the head of it. At the age of 18, he goes to Cambridge and he writes a book which codifies the rules of table tennis. So he's the guy that comes up with the rules that remain intact till now. Did he have to speak to the ping pong people about No, this? he talked to no one. He just wrote down what he thought the rules are. He prints it out. It gets translated into dozens of languages. He sends it out everywhere for everyone to read and says wow. these are the rules of table tennis. He starts single-handedly elevating the sport of ping pong into table tennis. So from gotcha. a parlor game thing. No one is in it first, but he starts to just say, this is going to be a serious sport, not an after-dinner frivolous exercise, and I'm going to put up money to make tournaments and make gotcha. people play it. So his first tournament, he has 140 players register, and he just thinks it's great. He loves it because he sees a guy in a wheelchair beat Cambridge University's finest runner. He sees the chess champion from Cambridge beat its top tennis player, and he thinks to himself, this aligns with my communist views that this is a sport for every person. It's cheap, it's democratic, all these things, right? He organises a challenge between Oxford University, Cambridge versus Oxford University. He captains Oxford. They win 31 to 5. All five losses were Montagues. (laughs) So he's terrible (laughs) at table tennis. But he's put himself on the team. But he loves it. So he sets up under all these new tournaments under the new name, the Ping Pong Association. How's he doing that? Straight away he gets sued (laughs) (laughs) by Jacques and Sons. So it's been 20 years since the fad. He was born when the fad was on. The fad's still not making any money. money, So he doesn't know this is a a trademark, right? sitting there dormant. So they have a meeting, bring him in, and they go, look, uh, you're going to have to pay us to use Ping Pong Association. So he says, okay, I dissolve the ping pong association, goes into the next room and immediately reforms the table tennis association. There it is. Straight away. He just says it. He starts promoting a national championship in England through the Daily Mirror because yes. he's got all these contacts. He promises a car for the winning men's single and a mink coat for the ladies. And this is like 1925. So a car is like pretty big deal oh, to massive. win and a mink coat. He draws 30,000 entrants and so suddenly it's big. By 1926, he finances the first ever world championships and founds the International Table Tennis Federation, which is like the FIFA of table tennis (laughs) and exists to this day. So they have an ethics committee? (laughs) They'll need one. (laughs) The first beating of the International Table Tennis Federation takes place in his library at Kensington Court, family home. He says, we're going to make this a huge world sport. I will fund it all. He's 22 years old. Um, he's promptly elected president of the federation by everyone there because he's paying for it all. Yes. And he stays president over 40 years, not retiring until 1967. Wow. It's a Sepp style yeah. reign of terror. Around this time, he meets a woman called Eileen Hellstern, and she's known to all her friends as Hell. That's her nickname, Thank right? You. From the parents' perspective, they know he's dating her. They think this is the worst choice she could make. She's a divorced mother of one. She's the daughter of a maker of surgical shoes, which to them is like not a <laughs> real, like, because they're rich. Yeah. And her mother had been institutionalized after her father's death. So they're like, she comes from bad Nuts. stock. Yeah. In February 1927, a full two years after they met, 
Montague and Hill marry secretly at the registry office. Don't tell anyone. But the news breaks and newspapers write, London is agog at the elopement of Ivor Montague, age 22, the youngest son of Lord Swaithling. The young son has secretly married yesterday at the registry office to Miss Eileen Helston. Miss Helston is a typist and the daughter of a shoemaker. <laughs> the story runs from Los Angeles to New York on all the papers because he's such his family is so famous, right? The front page of London papers write, Baron son weds secretary, even though she's not his secretary. Um, they're on the run from the press and they have to use makeup and a wardrobe department from Montague's film contacts to hide. <laughs> His mother and father are like broken. Yes. His mother receives dozens of condolence notes from people mm. and she makes the mistake of leaving them out in the family home and Montague finds them and he reads through them all and he finds the shortest condolence note out of all of them which he commits to memory. It's from the Queen <laughs> and it says... Gladys, I feel for you, May. Oh, wow. Caught right? that. His father's so furious, he changes the will, reducing Ivor's inheritance by three-fifths. Okay, that hurts. The parents, though, quickly warn to Eileen and find out she's amazing and they like her. But the father dies before they can restore the will. Uh, so he's a bit sort of... In the background here, table tennis is taking off. And by the end of the 1920s, table tennis has become a true sport because of him. And it takes off in Hungary of all places. Huge in Hungary. What? Those crazy Hungarians. Hungary's ruler, Admiral Miklos Horthy, who is a right-wing anti-communist, so Montague can't believe it. He sends a note to Montague saying, oh, I'm, I'm just letting you know I'm attending the finals. This is how big it's become yes. there. Montague is furious but doesn't do anything. Yeah. He goes along and he takes the English team to Budapest, this world championship. And included in the group is a young 19-year-old, their best new player for England, a guy by the name of Fred Perry. You might recognise yes, that name. Fred Perry goes on to become one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Yep. Last Englishman to win Wimbledon. And Fred Perry clothing is very popular today, sportswear. They watch in amazement as Perry wins all of this. And he's like this blonde-headed guy. He becomes really popular. Mm. He wins the championship and then turns to lawn tennis and goes on to win Wimbledon. Sure. He wins a Grand Slam. He does everything. Turns his back on table tennis. Turns his back on table tennis. Montague, though, after this uh, 1929 World Championship in Hungary, he decides he's fully become dedicated to the communist cause and he started writing for a left-wing newspaper called the Daily Worker newspaper. He decides that he'll swing by and meet Leon Trotsky, one of the fathers of the revolution and founder yeah, of the Red Army. Not? Now, Leon Trotsky had recently faced off against Stalin for control of Soviet Russia and losers, right? Yeah. He's hiding in Budapest and he's protected 24 hours a day by Turkish police officers because Russian agents are trying to come and kill him, which they eventually do with an ice pick. They've got a history of yeah. Russian agents. But he swings by and spends the night with him and Trotsky lives in constant fear of assassination by Stalin, but... He lets Ivan Montague in, even though he knows Ivan is like a Stalinist-type communist. Mm. And in, in the middle of the night, he gives him a, a gun and says, you'll need this in case they break in in the night. And Montague is not exactly a killer and he sleeps with it under the pillow, terrified the gun's <laughs> going to go off. <laughs> Around this time, he's gone to Moscow. And in Moscow, he gets treated like a hero. Mm. And they all ask him about table tennis. Right. He sits just two rows behind Stalin at the Bolshoi Theatre, meets all these guys and they all love him and 
in the wake of him leaving, table tennis takes off in Russia. So it's so in Soviet he's, Russia. He's just mo- spreading it everywhere. Fantastic. It's going great guns. They're getting tens of thousands of people showing up to table tennis tournaments. So it's and big it, in Hungary now, big, big in, in Russia, big in England even. It's, it's starting to become a, a serious thing. The one problem is by 1936, it's growing. It's declining as a sport because it's become boring because, one, they've repainted the tables, which makes the playing surface very slow, and there's a much higher net than today. And a bunch of players decide if you never try and play an attacking shot, the ball's slow enough that you can never lose. So I just keep hitting the ball back until Endless the rallies. guys make a mistake. And so attacking shots become very thing. Dull. And it's, it's known as chiseling at the time, and it makes it very dull, and suddenly the crowds are dwindling. To the point where... Who wants to go and watch some chiseling? Exactly. In, in 1936 in Prague, it becomes so boring. Montague's watching a guy called Arnon Paneth who's playing and he's an absolute dull, never played and taking shot player, right? And he's playing against a guy called Alex Ehrlich and he's one of the best in the world. He's a Polish-Jewish guy, which becomes important. And he prefers to play with one hand in his pocket. You it's that away, slow. Right? Table tennis is that slow. Ehrlich is furious and wants to show Montague, and this is at the World Championship, yes. how bad the rules of table tennis have become that you can just play so slowly. So he decides to mirror the play, and he also decides not to play any attacking shots. The ball's going back and forth. The crowds start to laugh because it's so stupid. Yes. Montague is getting annoying. It's taking forever. He starts pleading with the men, come on, try and hit a shot. Try and win this. Kill can you speed us. this up? And Ehrlich said, I'll let my hand drop off before I'll hit this ball hard. I'm proving to you that these rules suck. This yeah. is the worst. It reaches its 30th minute, this one point. <laughs> no one's like, this is the one point, right? The rally's gone for 30 they minutes. They made their point. He calls for his teammates, Ehrlich, to set up a chessboard on a nearby table and starts to call out his moves while playing. <laughs> <laughs> this is all to show this is a dumb sport. You've yeah. ruined it, right? At 45 minutes playing the same point. The referee complains of a stiff neck and has to be replaced. (laughs) Ehrlich's now sending up ridiculously high balls, just tempting Paneth to smash, but Paneth just keeps knocking the ball back slowly. Ehrlich calls for lunch and gets delivered a cheese baguette, which he eats as he plays. (laughs) Montague walks out and gets a quorum of ITTF board members and they start talking about ways to improve the rules. They walk back in. And the point is still going two hours after it's begun. That's hilarious. Right? They start having the meeting and talking to Ehrlich going, look, we've got to come up with new rules. We're going to fix it. Finally, at one point, Ehrlich hits a shot. It hits the net and drops onto Panna's side and Ehrlich wins the point. The point, it's gone about two hours and 13 minutes. It's the longest rally ever in table tennis to this day. Ehrlich then decides to play attackingly once they've agreed to change the rules a bit and wins the rest of the match in under 10 minutes. Perfect. So that's the longest ever. He made his point, though. By 1937, Montague had actually grown this book to the point where the new king, George VI, had become the patron of the Table Tennis Association. So it's become that big. And he plays a lot as well. And it becomes quite popular. Yes. But then World War II hits. Just before World War II, Stalin has totally taken over Russia and he's launched the Great Terror, which is this political campaign to just eliminate any dissenting members of the Communist Party. Yep. Starts in 1937. Montague is so committed to communism that he backs Stalin and says anyone who says bad things are happening is lying. True. The Soviet Union's military intelligence, the GAU, approach him and ask if he would like to become a spy. 
So he becomes a spy. The head of the with, Table Tennis Association. Yeah, is there is a Russian spy <laughs> with the codename Intelligentsia. Oh, right? Wow. So he's spying for the Russians. Now the war starts to break out and awkwardly his brother, uh, Montague's brother, Ewan Edward Samuel Montague, who's a barrister, joins naval intelligence for MI6. So one brother's spying for the English, the other spying for the Russians. Incredible. His brother Ewan is so high up, he's privy to even the top secrets of Ultra, you know, the code breaking of the Germans. Yes. Barely anyone has access to them. So that's how high up his brother is. So he's fine. With, but they're technically on the same side because the Russians are helping, helping the, the uh, on the same yes. side of this. Ewan, his brother, masterminds the top secret operation Mincemeat in 1943, which has had several movies made about it, which is when they get a dead body and dress it in a uniform and put pretend classified documents and let it float up onto a beach in Spain and it gets to Adolf Hitler and it shows that they're not planning to invade Sicily and right. Hitler believes it and moves units out of Sicily and so it's one, known as one of the great spy moments. This is Montague's wow. brother and he writes a book about it called The Man Who Never Was which becomes a huge Operation Mincemeat mm. and there's a movie that just came out with Colin Firth in it called Operation Mincemeat. Right. So I'm just saying he connects all these dots, right? Will there be an Operation Ping Pong? <laughs> Ivor knew his brother was working as a spy, but his brother doesn't know that he's a spy for the Russians. But his boss at MI5 does know. <laughs> Jesus. So he suspects Ivor in general. He says, I suspected him because of his outspoken communist politics. He's hanging around with scruffy Russians. That'd be right. And housing a Jewish refugee in the house. So these were all seen as yeah, potential red flags, right? His suspicions were that this guy's so passionate about ping pong that MI5 believe ping pong is so stupid it has to be a cover for spying. That's what they think. It could, could be like a code, like the sound, <laughs> yeah. like like Morse code. Tink, 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 tink. He wants you to invade tink, Italy. Tink, tink, yeah. tink. No one could be that invested in such That's a what stupid they think. thing. If there's not an ulterior a motive, for so this they to be. they think table tennis is a communist I would, plot. <laughs> They do. They genuinely, MI5 genuinely think it's a communist plot. This is in the middle of World War II. They go, it must be. There's no other way. No, no one would be that into circuit. this sport. We need to get a man. Yeah, so we they need to infiltrate the ping pong circuit. So they start tapping his phone and opening his mail and they create three volumes of files on him, but they don't find enough actual evidence of anything interesting he's doing. Right. But they've got their eyes on him. But even while this is all going on, Table tennis is never far away. The Geneva Convention, which is the Geneva Convention yes. on how you treat prisoners of wars, in World War II, one of the great things is how do you look after prisoners that you've got locked up? Now, these are not the concentration camps. This is the soldiers and things like that. Sure. So they don't treat well the Nazis, but to combat it, the Red Cross recommends board games and table tennis sets. This spreads the game of table tennis because suddenly you've got all these soldiers in prison or war camps and they're all being sent table tennis equipment. <laughs> Which, so they're going, oh, I like this game, right? So all these things. The standard package from the Red Cross includes 24 balls, four bats, two nets, and a pair of posts. And it gets sent to all the prisoner of war camps around the world. And it wow. spreads the game. This is part of the Geneva Convention. Yeah. Ping pong. Ping pong becomes part of it, right? The British intelligence are watching this and they're watching Montague. There's MI9, which no longer exists but existed in the war, it's a very secretive Department of War office. It exists just for the Second World War. They have two tasks. They assist in the escape of Allied prisoners and they help downed Allied military personnel get back across out of Europe. Gotcha. If they get shot down, they get them back to uh, England, right? 
they look at this and they're tailing Montague as well. So they're very independently. They're on to him. Oh no, they're on through MI5. Right. They know about they're, him, they're and they know it. and they know the Red Cross are delivering table tennis sets everywhere, and they're watching Montague as well. So they design a table tennis set with the bats are hollowed out handles hiding silk maps and tiny compasses, and they deliver them with the Red Cross and hope it just gets caught up in all the Red Cross table tennis tables that are being delivered everywhere. And these go into prisoner camps to help prisoners escape. The new bats of arrived. Yeah, exactly. Like, this is what I'm you saying. You might table. want to have a look at this blue bat. Now, the reigning world table tennis champion is a guy called Richard Bergman, and he's one of the 160,000 soldiers on the south coast of England awaiting D-Day. Right. So he's no longer playing because the war's on, but he's one of the soldiers awaiting D-Day. And on the 3rd of June, 1944, right days before the invasion, he's running around the base and he's looking to drop off some application because he wants to become the sport officer for his division. Sure. And he opens a door to a room and it's a huge room and it's filled top to bottom with shiny white ping pong balls. He shuts the door and thinks, I'm having a nervous breakdown, a fever dream, and then opens it again. And he finds out that he's not hallucinating Table tennis supplies, and he's had trouble getting table tennis balls during the war, have all been bought by the RAF and they put them in the wings of all their seagoing aircraft as an inexpensive flotation aid. So all the planes going, all their wings are full of table tennis balls. So they don't sink as much when they land. Incredible. So that's all happening there. Pilots, don't they use ping pong as a. Or did like they hand not, eye like coordination? Hand eye coordination. Yeah, well, like, they were just like everywhere, and that was a big, yeah, that was a big way of selling up. it. Yeah, big way of selling yeah, it. Yeah. The war ends. Montague for the Daily Worker newspaper goes to Nuremberg and covers the war trials there. So now he's in Nuremberg. <laughs> when I'm it. telling you, he's connected to yeah, all the way. We might pause it there, okay? Because when we come back, the war is finished. Montague has been spying for the Russians. Suddenly. The Cold War is starting. Yes. And he is this guy that can easily travel back and forth between the West and over the Iron Curtain, which no one else can, which means that suddenly table tennis is the only sport that can be truly international in the world. Wow. All right. Stay tuned. What's going to go on next? If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, things get even bizarrer, Join our membership program, Bazaar Plus. Very easy to do. Just follow the link in the show notes for this podcast or go to bazaarplus.com to join Bazaar Plus, our membership program. Cheers.